From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Elise Hammond. And I'm Beth Greenman. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. An annual event last week provided sexual assault survivors with resources and empowerment. It's the same thing for challenging rape culture. Oh wow, look at the difference when we're able to challenge it. When we're able to say and see what's not okay, but has been told to us that it is normal. Activism can take a toll. Our reporters have the details on the role self-care plays when it comes to trying to bring about change. And a look at how Ohio University influenced the creator and executive producer of a popular Netflix show. We'll give you all the details and more coming up right here on The Outlet. The Take Back the Night March has been happening in Athens since 1979. This year is the first one Ohio University's Women's Center has spearheaded and provided supplemental programming. With more on the story, here's the outlet's Beth Greenman. It's 6.30 on Thursday night and there are over 700 people in the Baker Center Ballroom. There are stations with posters set up for several organizations, including My Sister's Place, the Survivor Advocacy Program, and Counseling and Psychological Services. Everyone is waiting to hear from survivors of and allies of survivors of sexual violence as part of Take Back the Night programming. Women's Center Director Dr. Geneva Murray was amazed with the turnout. We had 723 hearing survivor stories last night. I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? 723 people heard survivors. The speaker's event was held right before the annual Take Back the Night March, which started from the ballroom. The march is part of a national movement to give power back to sexual violence survivors, to allow them to walk the streets at night without fear. The march has undergone many changes over time, though, specifically in how it focuses on gender. Women's Gender and Sexuality's Assistant Professor Dr. Patty Stokes taught a workshop on the history of the march and looked at how the conversation around gender in the event has shifted over the years. Who's going to set the program? What's the emphasis going to be? What's the place of men in the, uh, in the march particularly? There have, been all, there have always been events that were open to everybody, but the march over the years was either predominantly women with men sort of joining in or doing uh, sideline support. There were times when men marched with fully, but up till in the early 2000s, up till about 2014, it was really still conceived of as a, a women's march. But the conversation on sexual violence, which became broader in those years anyway, broadened out to the point where we um, we no longer see rape as only something that happens to women. While there has been ongoing debate about whether men should be included in the march, Dr. Stokes thinks it is important to remember that sexual violence is systemic in how it affects women and minorities. And I think it's important to keep a certain amount of spotlight on the fact that women are targets because it's also not true that rape is indiscriminatory. Most of the perpetrators are men. I think that one of the very important things was opening the march to uh, people who are identifying as trans or non-binary because they have a very, very high uh, risk of sexual assault as well. So absolute numbers in the population are small relative to the number of women victims, but relative to the number of trans people, they are at high risk. 
uh, bisexual women are also at levels of risk that are much higher than women on average. So it's important to understand you know, how this risk um, impacts different groups differently and to look at this uh, in an intersectional way, as we feminists like to say. Dr. Stokes also talked about the benefits and disadvantages of institutionalizing the march. The first Take Back the Night march in Athens took place in 1979 and was largely organized by the Athens Women's Collective. In 2000, Ohio University's Student Senate started running the show. Now, the Women's Center is taking the lead, which has its pros and cons. There have been a lot of changes in terms of institutionalizing um, the fight against rape and rape culture. Uh, the establishment and spread of rape crisis centers all over the country and getting them to the point, point where they are now grant funded uh, is one of the most important things that has come straight out of the women's movement to try to end rape. Hand in hand with these public demonstrations has also gone a, a behind the scenes effort to try to change the law. And so we've had feminist uh, lawyers and law theorists uh, working on things like sexual harassment. There may well be more legal changes. Dr. Stokes does think it's important to note that with institutionalization often comes a reining in of movements. Dr. Murray, though, believes the Women's Center leading the march will lend itself to greater sustainability for the event. Take Back the Night is such an exciting and wonderful event. The Women's Center um, wanted to be more involved from a strategic standpoint of thinking about ongoing sustainability for Take Back the Night. Um, and housing Take Back the Night in the Women's Center allows us to coordinate with the various groups that are passionate and dedicated about making sure that this event goes on each and every year. And so we are, we are committed to hearing from everyone who is invested in this program. And um, we are committed to making sure that every year we're able to continue to build on the momentum from the year before. Dr. Murray also gave a workshop as part of the event. Hers was on recognizing and responding to rape culture. She thinks it is important for people to take a critical look at their interactions and how they may be playing into larger rape culture in the country. It's like sometimes I don't see the dust until I've started dusting, if that makes sense. Um, and then I'm like, oh, wow, look at the difference that makes. It's the same thing for challenging rape culture. Oh, wow, look at the difference when we're able to challenge it, when we're able to say and see what's not okay, but has been told to us that it is normal. Dr. Murray wants to approach the conversation about Take Back the Night and sexual violence as a whole from a future-oriented standpoint. The Women's Center has a commitment to standing with and supporting survivors year-long, and not just for Take Back the Night. Each year, what can we be doing collectively to ensure that it's not just one night, that that is the night in which we come together to say, this is our commitment. But that commitment expands beyond that day, that night. And so every year, what are we doing to do better? For The Outlet, I'm Beth Greenman. When most people think of activism, they think of protests, marches, and petitions. One thing that rarely comes to mind is self-care. Michaela Ashburn and Delaney Murray take a look at how self-care is just as important to activists as activism itself. In 2018, it seems like there's always something going on, and there are constantly new causes to fight for. 
Julian Shepard is no stranger to fighting for something. She's a junior studying English creative writing and women, gender, and sexuality studies, and treasurer of Intersectional Feminist Alliance, more commonly known on campus as IFA. Julian refers to herself as a student activist and is involved in several campus trainings and activities. The on-campus actions we take are are stuff that Urge gives us to do, like the abortion positive tour that they do every other semester, um, just advocating for reproductive justice on college campuses, and that's kind of what we've got going on right now, and that's what I've been doing for the last three years. But being heavily involved with activism can often lead to what is called activist burnout. Alexis Solanges is a senior studying event management and nonprofit management and is the outreach coordinator for the LGBT Center. She defines activist burnout as, You're just tired, you're run down, you're you know, unmotivated to kind of keep going and fighting for what you believe in. Activist burnout is not new. UC Berkeley psychology professor Christina Malash defines burnout as a syndrome of emotional exhaustion. According to goodtherapy.org, activist burnout can make a person feel exhausted, angry, guilty, and hopeless. And Julian is all too familiar with all of these feelings. I was just exhausted, not just because like my efforts had kind of been for close to nothing, but I think part of activist burnout for me was like, if even if I had gotten like the reward that I wanted from it, like get, uh, accomplishing the goal I'd been working towards, I would still have that. And it was just, I just really wanted to lay in bed for like three days mm-hmm. or three months and um, not do anything at all. Julian has been involved with activism since she was in high school and has frequently experienced activist burnout. She remembers her burnout got particularly bad after the 2016 election of President Trump. I think even before he was elected, people were having activist burnout because when I graduated from high school, the wave of activism I rode in on into college was Bernie getting into the primaries and with this big uptick of young voters coming out and being registered and getting involved and we were so focused on that and then November came and by the time it rolled around we were dead tired. And then it got worse. But it's still possible to fend off many of the symptoms of activist burnout. One way to potentially avoid burnout, or to treat it once it starts, is self-care. Alexa defines self-care as... Well, self-care in general is making sure that you are mentally, physically, emotionally uh, ready to take on the day, the week, the month. Alexa is a facilitator of Self-Care with Pride, an event put on by the LGBT Center every other Tuesday. We have um, different activities that we do, different guest speakers that come and talk about everything from um, self-care and activist burnout um, or compassion fatigue to um, an herbalist we have coming uh, actually this week to talk about some things. Uh, We also do crafts. Uh, We did affirmation jars. Uh, When you need a little pick-me-up, you can reach in your jar and kind of get a little confidence from that jar. Julian also practices self-care, but her particular strategy for taking care of herself involves many things, and not all of them are things that can be found at Self-Care with Pride. I do a lot of, like, I don't know how to describe this, like, Pinterest (laughs) self-care, like, face masks and self-affirmations, and all that stuff is nice, but, like, nitty-gritty self-care for me is, like, like I said, getting up, taking a shower, actually doing stuff that I need to do. Sometimes self-care doesn't feel like self-care. It feels like self-discipline, at least in my specific case. Jillian points out that while self-care, no matter what form it takes, is important for activists, it can be vital for everyone to practice. The days that we live are so hectic and crazy all the time that 
we often forget to take care of ourselves, whether that's making sure we're eating, making sure we're sleeping enough, exercising, um, taking a shower. Self-care may be practiced with a night in or with simply getting out of bed, but no matter what cause you fight for or how you practice self-care, there are always ways to avoid burning out completely. For The Outlet, this is Delaney Murray. Queer Eye, the unscripted Netflix makeover show, was renewed for a second season a couple weeks ago. Series creator and executive producer David Collins used to volunteer at WOUB and graduated from Ohio University in 1989. Collins tagged at WOUB in a post on Instagram when he was interviewed on NPR's All Things Considered in February. After his post, we reached out to Collins. He spoke with the outlet's Abby Brise about his experiences at Ohio University and how they prepared him to co-found his own production company. The interview was edited for length and clarity. Let's talk about your time at OU, what it was like for yeah. you. Um, <laughs> your What was your major? I was a TCOM major. Okay. Yeah. TCOM was a minor in film. I was the PR coordinator, public relations coordinator for the Athens Film Festival. That was one of my, I loved that. I had so much fun doing that. And I really got to kind of feed my passion for filmmaking back then. But TCOM was my, was my thing. So, you know, I, um, I landed there in 1985. I was in, uh, I ended up in the, uh, in South Green in, Pickering, is it? Um, yeah, I was Pickering's where my my freshman room was, and, uh, and then I ended up in Bryant Hall. I felt smart because I got it was an academic dorm back in the day, and you had to have like a high GPA. I, don't know, I, faked, I faked everyone out somehow and got in. I don't know how, <laughs> but I ended up getting a super single. It's one of my best stories ever. I got a super single my sophomore year, meaning I had a double room by myself. Oh my gosh! And, oh my goodness gracious, was I popular? Everybody wanted to hang out in my room. Um, but I was in Bryant Hall um, all of my sophomore year. Yeah, all of my sophomore year. And then and then my junior and senior year, I moved to West State Street, 66 West State. And truly, the, the amount of parties and fun that happened there is, is crazy, just <laughs> crazy. Here's some good dirt for you. You ready? Oh, yes, so, yes. I got a judge from the Athens uh, courthouse found me and somehow or another remembered we had all been out on a Saturday night and we ended up going skinny dipping at some uh, lake. We had all gone with a big group of us and of course, you know, maybe we had had a few drinks in a hoolie. <laughs> I don't know. And ended up... Uh, Skinny dipping, the Avid police brought us all in, and we had to stay in the clanker uh, <laughs> for a night, and then showed up in front of the judge in the morning, and he just laughed at us. He, he was like, what are you kids doing? I, somehow or another, and I had no idea, the judge or someone connected to it found me because of queer and sent me an email, and just, it was hysterical. He said, I love the show. I couldn't be prouder of you. And listen, if you ever want to come and get your your uh, 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 your offense expunged from your record, I'll be more than glad to help you. Uh, so, what about? I'm curious about like the culture when you were at OU. Like, was there an LGBT center? Like, do you feel like it was an accepting 
place. I feel like it is now, but I'm curious, you know, what was it like then? Yeah, 30 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, here's what it was. It was this kind of beautiful place of um, acceptance, right? There was, there was definitely not a lot of... Uh, kind of LGBTQ uh, awareness, if you will. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was the early days. It was, it, it was one of the things, it was a little bit of don't ask, don't tell mm. for a bit. And then, and, and then it really was just a, it was a place to grow and, and figure out who you are and, and who you were. And I think that, again, speaks to what OU has always kind of been, right? It's been a safe haven to spend four years of, of learning about yourself and, and connecting with people different than yourself. I, I loved OU. I, I loved the culture. I just remember just the, the, just the sense of kind of just beauty and, and freedom at OU. And, and then and it wasn't judgmental, you know? And mm-hmm. of course, there was always going to be this or that person that, that didn't, you know, perhaps agree. But I, I, I remember feeling so, feeling so safe there, and 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 really being able to grow and become, kind of become the the uh, the beginning of the man that, that I am today. You know. Okay, so the reason I guess this whole thing was even brought to my attention was you tagged us on Instagram when you yeah. were. Um, interviewed uh, on yeah, Morning yeah, Edition. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you worked at WUB in college. What did you do at WUB? I did. I ran the gamut there. Um, again, one of those like hands-on experiential things that I can't put enough emphasis on that gave me such confidence and um, know-how when I stepped into the real workplace. You know all of your free time you'd show up at WOUB and and I learned to finally how to how to run the board and to, how to how to run things so then all things considered and NPR would come on in the afternoons and I would throw to all things considered I'd be like you know there's a David Collins 1340 Athens Public Service Ohio University it's time for all things considered and then you know bring in all things considered and listen to to all of the amazing interviews and all of that so for me when I have uh, in the original Queer Eye and in this one the honor of being asked to come and speak at, at, at NPR you know National Public Radio connects directly to me back to OU right and, and to Ohio University and in those early days so I was like I said in that tag I was so humbled and more importantly so grateful for for what I learned back mm-hmm. at OU and, 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 and the public radio and public radio uh, public television system hard hits skidding knees and a fast stride are all a part of roller derby reporter maddie young saw a different side from the toughness of the sport they speed around the oval shaped track shoving members of the opposite team they wear pads on their knees and elbows and a helmet on their head they have names like Blue Ladoom, Mojo Jojo, and Slaughtermelon. These are just some of the women who make up the roller derby team in Athens, called the Hellbetties. Ohio Roller Derby is comprised of 25 women from Athens and the surrounding region. 
Roller Derby is a team that pits two teams of 14 players against each other, skating anti-clockwise around an oval track. Each team has five players on a track at a time, four blockers and one jammer. The game consists of short matches in which both teams designate a jammer who scores points by lapping members of the opposing team. Although it may seem like a vigorous sport, Vice President Liz Hammer, also known as Bruiser Van Hammerstein, says that it actually promotes community. Athens, Ohio Roller Derby is really a league that is supported by our community and run by community members. Um, we all live and work in this community. We love this community. Um, and we kind of come together with this passion for this sport and we just want to play derby. Though Liz has been skating for five years, Cassidy Hunkler, a.k.a. Brass Hunkles, is what's known as fresh meat. This is her first season skating for the Hellbetties. I was insanely nervous. I've been practicing for six months and being brand new to the sport, it was a really scary and awesome experience. Um, just feeling really proud, I think, of everything and of myself and of surviving. Cassidy also feels the importance of community and sportsmanship when she's surrounded by her teammates. You know, I'm showing up to this thing every week that can be really intimidating and really, really hard. And, you know, just being able to do that is a total confidence booster. And I think everyone on the team who's so supportive of new people and are so encouraging and are constantly giving you feedback and, you know, praise, that just makes me feel a million times better. Back at the rink, players are lined up with their tough skating names written on their jerseys, spikes on their skates, and a scowl on their faces. But all of this is just a mask for what roller derby really means to the Hellbetties. A sense of friendship, community, and confidence. For the outlet, I'm Maddie Young. In the male-dominated industry of video gaming, female characters are few and far between. When they are present, there is a certain stereotype. Delaney Ruth and Julia Ryan dive into the gaming universe and discuss how women are perceived and treated in video games. This is Allie Bodner, a video gaming veteran. She's playing Grand Theft Auto in a dorm room. The game is filled with violence, destruction, and death. As women pop in and out of the game, Allie sees a common theme. Women are strictly classified as prostitutes and strippers, and killing a woman merits a higher award than killing a man. Allie has learned to brush off biases she faces being a woman with a passion for gaming. Women play different roles in different video games, but there's an underlying theme that seems to have popped up. Allie says there's pretty heavy sexualization of female characters in the majority of video games she's played, and strong female characters in video games are rare. This sexualization and portrayal of women as objects and victims of violence translates into real life. I definitely think since video gamers see so much violence against women within the game, they don't feel as shocked by it in real life. In one game, the goal is to kill as many women as possible. Not only do certain video games encourage violence, but oftentimes reinforce gender stereotypes as well. Kelly Choik is a professor in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department. So, I mean, we live in a very misogynistic culture. Femininity is weakness. Women are weak, men are strong. The oppression women feel in the video gaming community is striking, considering 42% of all gamers are women, according to Statista. But avid video game player Spencer Charlton says games such as Grand Theft Auto or GTA should not be held as the blanket standard for the way females are portrayed in video games. 
People look for one example of how women are sexualized video games. They always point out GTA and they can't give any other example. There's multiple games where the lead character is a female and you play as a female. But there's plenty of games. There's Tomb Raider. There is Legend of Zelda where you play, you play as Link, but you can also play as Zelda. Super Smash Bros. You can play as many different female characters from around the Nintendo universe. So when people say that, oh, well, there's just females in games that are just like, they're all they are is prostitutes and whores. Like, that's such crap. Even with the inclusion of female main characters in video games, the heavy sexualization leads to a larger conversation of gender roles and what it means to be masculine or feminine in today's society. Female characters in video games aren't the only ones held to certain standards. Professor Choik explains how being a female and playing video games can be tough as well. And when you're talking about traditionally masculine spaces, the idea of opening it up to feminine bodies or creating a space for femininity, even if those women and girls are not representing as feminine, it's seen um, with suspicion and hostility often. So the pressing question is, how do things change? You just start with having healthy conversations, acknowledging that there's a power issue, a structural issue going on and then having healthy conversations about it. For The Outlet, I'm Julia Ryan. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is co-produced and hosted each week by me, Beth Greenman, and Elise Haymond. We're edited by Atish Baidia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos, and Dalton Pritt mixes our show. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes or find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Outlet underscore WOUB and on Instagram at WOUB underscore Outlet. We'll be back next time with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.